We are at the end of another chunk of John's Gospel. Uh, we have been uh, just, uh, we're on the second leg, but we're still only in chapter 8. So, uh, you know, maybe come back in a couple of years and we're still in John, who knows. But, um, uh, but I'm going to launch straight into our passage and, uh, and then we'll see where we go from there. So we're in chapter 8, starting at verse 12, reading up to verse 32. Uh, the again, Jesus spoke to them. That's a group of Pharisees. Um, and it kind of feels like he's actually picking up a conversation he was having a few chapters ago. But anyway, um, this is Jesus in conversation with Pharisees. And he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself, so your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, and I judge no one. But even if I did judge, my judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you'd know my Father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury, as he taught, just as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, is he going to kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So like, like many, possibly most of you, uh, but unlike some of those who will be starting at university this September, I was born in the 20th century. Uh, and uh, at somewhere near the end of the 20th century, um, there was a, a time I was at a free jazz festival in my local area in West London. It ran there every summer, and it was th- attended by thousands of people, and it was a brilliant, brilliant environment. And one year in particular stands out to me, because of two strange encounters I had with people. 
The first was when I was sitting with my friends and I saw a frazzled-looking hippie just sort of standing a few meters away on his own, and he was staring right at me as though he'd seen a ghost. And I called over to him. I said something like, can I help you? Which isn't threatening at all in London. Um, at, which, at which point, he wandered over to me, and with a questioning tone, he said, Wayne? It took me a moment, but I realized, obviously, this was a case of mistaken identity, but it wasn't just anyone that he thought he had seen. It was actually my father, whose name is Wayne. So I told him, no, Wayne is my father. And it turns out this guy hadn't seen my dad for about 25 years. And when he clapped eyes on me, he thought he was having some kind of acid flashback. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I managed, to, I managed to get this guy's number, and I put him in touch with my dad. And they actually had a really, really great reunion. It's a really happy story. The other memorable encounter was the same, the same year um, at the same festival. And I'm there after a church service. We walked down to the festival uh, from, a, uh, from the church service with some folk from church, among whom was a young woman I didn't know very well. And we were standing around in a, in a group just chatting away. We had our beers and our plastic cups in our hands. And we're chatting away. And out of the blue, she says to me, you look Jewish. Are you Jewish? And I responded with something like, well, there's actually a lot I don't know about my ethnic background. There's a possibility. I don't know. You know, that's as much as I can really say about that. But that didn't satisfy her at all. Uh, she insisted I must be Jewish. And if I didn't confess that I was Jewish, she would throw her pint of beer over me. And I was unwilling at that point to... to uh, confirm or deny anything with, with any greater um, strength about my potential Jewishness uh, than I had thus far. And I suddenly found myself dripping from head to toe in what had been a pint of probably London Pride ale. So I'm telling you these stories just to say this. Those two people saw me and reacted to me. But their reactions had absolutely nothing to do with me. When those people looked at me, they didn't see me as I actually am. But what they saw uh, was somebody through a very strong lens, in both cases, uh, that was made up of their own histories and their own experiences. The hippie's history was an old friendship with my dad. And when he saw me, he didn't see me. He, he saw a bunch of memories that I had had no part of. The woman's history, God knows. <laughs> but I didn't cause her to throw that beer over me. But something she saw when she looked at me caused something else to rise up in her such that she felt compelled to anoint me with precious, precious beer. So what's that got to do with this passage? Well, when we, who live in the wonderfully enlightened 21st century, read these exchanges between Jesus and the Pharisees, we sometimes marvel at their failure to see what is right before their eyes. It seems as though what they love to do is take their interpretations of Scripture twist it into something that is barely recognizable as anything ever come from God. 
And that's something no Christian would ever do, right? Well, as I hope I just illustrated, we're not so completely different in terms of nature, in terms of human nature, than those people who lived thousands of years ago. But we're very different in terms of the history and the experience that forms the lens through which we see the world and that colors and influences the words that we hear Jesus speak. Now, I believe that Jesus' words have incredible power to speak directly to us at whatever point of history we live, and I don't ever want to get in the way of that. But I also believe that there's a depth of meaning to Jesus' words that can only be discovered when we try and empathize with the people he's in conversation with. What did they hear when they heard Jesus? What did they see when they saw the things that he did? What did all of that resonate with in their own histories and in their own experiences? In case of certain individuals, we can't really answer that question, but in in the case of a general group, we can start to get at some of those answers. And in the case of this passage, and in so much of John's Gospel, what those people have that we don't have is a really strong sense of some specific things that Jesus is comparing himself to. So when Jesus calls himself light or shepherd or bread, he's not just picking ideas and images out of nowhere. He's drawing very specific comparisons. It's like uh, John's equivalent of the other Gospels when you hear Jesus saying, you have heard it said this, but I tell you this. For us, we're often hearing both those things at the same time because we're 2,000 years later. We're hearing both the thing that was said and the thing that Jesus is saying. But for those who were hearing it, for those to whom Jesus was speaking, those words are a complete Copernican revolution. It's like discovering that the earth orbits the sun instead of the other way around. Now, in order to illustrate what I think is the most important background element that gives these contexts to Jesus' words. I need you to just track track with me for a short while as I do a really fast recap of the last two years' worth of preaching here at the Kingdom Vineyard. See, I have a a, a strong sense uh, that um, partly with our help, but mostly through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe, that we've arrived at this passage not just at the end of a series on John, but actually as part of a long arc of preaching uh, that we've been on over the last few years. So just bear with me. So a couple of years ago, we we started a series that we called The Exodus Express. Now, Toby and I, as well as uh, others in this room and some pretty well-respected scholars, are convinced that the narrative of the Exodus and Moses and his crazy adventures with Egypt and Israel is, is a kind of key that unlocks a lot of pattern of thought that runs throughout the entire Bible. And we went through the first incredible chapters of Exodus where the people of God are enslaved in Egypt and by the power of God worked through Moses. They escaped through the Red Sea. They saw their enemies destroyed. And at that point... We stopped the Exodus Express at the foot of Mount Sinai and we flashed forward 
into the New Testament and looked at the epistles of the Hebrews, which was introduced to us by the amazing uh, Dr. Moffat, our local Hebrews expert. And there we saw how the Christian community, not the Israelites, but the Christian community, was described in terms of a generation that was wandering in the wilderness after having been set free, but before they've made their way into the promised land. And in Hebrews, the writer calls the church to hold fast to God's faithfulness, not to drift away like Deborah's car when she forgot to put the handbrake on. The writer calls the church to hold fast because we've been set free, but we're not out of danger yet. And this isn't the promised land. And after our foray into Hebrews, we returned to Exodus and we picked up where Moses had uh, left off and he went up Mount Sinai and he met with God and he received the Torah. We saw how the tabernacle was going to be constructed so that God's presence would always be in the midst of his people. We heard instructions for worship that didn't just involve rituals but involved life lived as a reflection of God's own character. At that time, Moses alone would speak with God and he would emerge from God's presence with his face shining with the glory of God. And people were afraid, so he had to wear a veil over his face so that he could speak to them. They weren't ready for that kind of glory. At that point, we jumped forward again. We went into the second letter to the Corinthians by Paul. And that letter spoke of how the church, not the temple or the tabernacle, was now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The law of God, uh, Paul says, is no longer written on stone tablets, but it's written on human hearts. I'm just going to read this quick section from 2 Corinthians. It's a little long, but um, it kind of sets up what I want to say about John's gospel. God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? I'm just going to skip a couple of verses. This is, two, this is in 2 Corinthians 3, so you can check, make sure I'm not doing an injustice to the text by skipping a couple of verses, but here we are. Since we have such a hope... We are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites not might, might, might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And it was at that point that we launched into John's Gospel. And Dr. Shively gave us an introduction, preaching from John's beautiful prologue in chapter 1. And she explained how there Jesus is described as a light that illuminates everything about God, everything about who we are, everything about what is really going on in the world. There Jesus is described as a light shining in the darkness. Whatever you think you know about God, John reckons, you have to measure that against the person of Jesus. 
because he is God with us. And two other people are mentioned in John's prologue. First is John, John the Baptist, and uh, the text says that he was not the light, he was a witness of the light. And the second person is Moses. And John says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So here's my main point coming back to this passage and my whole reason for doing that recap. When it comes to reading the Bible in general and uh, reading John's Gospel in particular, the person of Moses is a really big deal. There are other big deals in Jewish history. David is one. Abraham is another one. Me dripping with beer, I might be another one, but we never know. But on my reading of John's Gospel, it's not David or Abraham that lurks behind every statement. It's Moses. So there's a hundred things I could say about this passage, about all the legal arguments that the Pharisees are making to try and undo him. But I'm more interested in the bigger argument that Jesus is making. And I hope you'll forgive me uh, for being a little bit excited about this. This is kind of, this is something that was really at the heart of my dissertation research, which I know you want to read. You, you know you want to read it. But I was asked at one point by one of the professors if I was just arguing that John's gospel is setting up Jesus as a better Moses, or a new Moses, uh, an extra Moses. As though John was saying, you know Moses and you love Moses, but check out Jesus. He's like Moses 2.0. But that wasn't actually my argument at all. My argument was this, that in John's gospel, Jesus is revealed to be the light source that actually caused Moses' own face to shine. He is the glory of God. That's what the prologue of John says. In London, we might say, Moses was the monkey, but Jesus was the organ grinder. Maybe you don't know that saying. There you go. So John's not saying that Jesus is like Moses. He's saying that Moses is like John the Baptist. He's not the light. He's a witness to the light. But Jesus is the light. It's a completely different order that Jesus is being placed on. He's not being uh, measured up against Moses. He's basically the thing that Moses was talking about. And every time Jesus says, I am, like he does here, he says, I am the light of the world, He's echoing God's words to Moses from the burning bush. Moses asks God, uh, when I go to the Israelites, who shall I say sent me? It's like when you, um, you're on the phone and someone says, can I speak to such and such? And you say, whom shall I say is calling? Moses is at the burning bush saying, who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am. It's very mysterious. I'm not going to go into that. But his name is I Am. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am the light. I am the bread of life that sustains you in the wilderness. I am the shepherd who will lead you to safety. I am the way, the truth, the resurrection, the life. Before Abraham was, I am. So here is Jesus, the I Am. 
And just a couple of chapters ago, Jesus told the Pharisees this, that if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So when the Pharisees are trying to use the law to trap Jesus or to undo him, in my reading of John's Gospels, uh, John's Gospel, all of Jesus' cryptic responses kind of amount to this, that the law you're trying to judge Jesus with, that law that came from Moses, where exactly do you think Moses got that from? You know that shiny stuff that was on his face? Hello. And here's where I think the Pharisees got it wrong. It's not that they valued the law too highly. It's that they were so committed to their interpretation of it. While its very source stood in front of them, telling them that they were very much mistaken. And this, I think, is as important to us today as it was for them. In our relationships with people, especially people who don't know God, are we so committed to our interpretations of Scripture? Are we so sure about the role of women in church? Or so sure about the rights and wrongs of homosexual relationships? Or so sure about the precise date and location of when Jesus is going to return? That we forget that the light of the world himself stands ready to shine into the darkness that encompasses this world. I'm not saying that the interpretation of Scripture is unimportant. It's something that I've kind of devoted a lot of my time to, and I think that is a good thing. I'm saying that as long as all I'm offering is my own interpretation of Scripture, I believe I'm offering nothing but death. My idea of what is right and what is wrong is nothing compared to the reality that the living God is longing to reveal himself to every human heart. I am absolutely tantalized by the saying at the end of this passage you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's a phrase, I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems to have made its way into a lot of popular uh, speech, even when people don't know its origin right here in the mouth of Jesus. But the problem is, um, in the way that I've heard it used, that people don't really elaborate on what they mean by being set free. Normally, uh, it seems to be in connection with some information or some revelation that will bring closure. But we have to ask if closure can really set a person free. Take um, something like the Hillsborough disaster. If you're American, you might not know what that is. It was an event where uh, lots of people uh, died in uh, crushed in crowds. 
for decades in this country, the families who lost loved ones at that event fought against the odds for the truth of that event to be uncovered. And now we believe it has been. My question is this. Will that truth set those grieving families free? I don't think it can. It may offer some resolution. It may uh, close a chapter. But I don't think it can heal anything. What about the last couple of months where we've experienced cowardly terrorist acts in our country. There's a public outcry, understandably, for answers. We want answers. But there's an assumption in that outcry that those answers will somehow cause those wounds to heal and cause any fear that we have to be assuaged. How about this fire that we've just prayed about? The rage and the demand for answers is completely understandable. I am angry. I want answers. I want something to be done so that something like this never happens again. But I fear that those who are grieving their losses are hoping that some process of examining causes and appropriately assigning blame will somehow set them free from their pain and their grief. And I don't think it can. I don't think that any answers they get, however true they are, will ultimately be unsatisfying. So if that kind of truth doesn't set a person free, what is Jesus getting at? I think... I think that although the answers people get and the answers people seek, while they may in themselves be true, I don't think they are what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about truth that will set a person free. Later on in John's Gospel, Pilate asks Jesus the question, what is truth? It's like the question that they ask Jesus in this passage, who are you? I think those are the same question. See, Jesus didn't actually answer Pilate when Pilate asks, what is truth? But the statement that he gave that prompted Pilate to ask that question was this, those who belong to the truth listen to my voice. And I was saying the other day, I was incredibly frustrated that Jesus didn't answer Pilate. But now I realize Jesus had answered the question before it had even been asked. Truth, according to Jesus, is something you belong to. And I know of only one thing that I am called to belong to, and that's God. God is truth. And perhaps a better question from Pilate would have been, who is truth? And the answer to that question is the classic right answer for any Sunday school question. Who is truth? Jesus. There's a, uh, an author that I really love. His name's Watchman Nee. Great name. He says this, Quite often people preach the gospel to a person by using a number of points, only to, define, to find that the next day the person will say, I've forgotten the third point. But salvation is not a matter of points. 
Salvation is not even a question of understanding or of will. It is a question of meeting God. Of people coming into first-hand contact with Christ the Savior. I think that when at the end of this passage Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, he's actually saying the same thing as he did at the beginning of this passage. I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Following Jesus means leaving the darkness and walking in light. It means embracing the one who is truth so that we might be set free. That's all I've got to, uh, to say today. Um, but I think uh, in, in the time that we've got left, I believe there are things that we all have that we're still captive to. Um, there is an event in our life when we become a Christian, when we acknowledge that God has rescued us from our life of sin. But there remains this constant cycle of rediscovering things that we're still chained to, of rediscovering uh, areas of our life that we haven't yet submitted to the power and authority of Jesus, that the areas of shadow that we haven't allowed the light of the world to shine into. And so our time of ministry, um, uh, where we invite you to come forward and we invite those who are home group, leaders in this, uh, home group members in this church to come and pray alongside you, uh, that is open to absolutely everybody. But I particularly want to invite you, if there are areas of your life that you just want to be set free from, that thing in your life that you keep going back to, like a dog goes back to its vomit. I know it's a horrible image, but sin is horrible. And Jesus wants to set you free. Why don't we stand? I'll pray. Ashton. Father, we confess that there are times that we have held our own opinions, interpretations, approximations of who you are to be more important than submission and encounter with you. And Lord, we ask now that you would cause your light to shed abroad in our hearts, that there would be no hidden corners, that there would be no shadow. Yeah. 
Lord, we ask that you would, just by uh, the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, just uh, indicate to each and every one of us parts of our lives that we need to submit to your authority. when Jesus comes to set us free from those places he comes not as a judge but as a friend as the prince of peace as one who walks with you from out of slavery into freedom. He doesn't ask you to make that journey on your own. So Father, we ask uh, that we would have the courage to cling to you the light of the world, the truth that sets us free. That we might follow where you lead. In the name of Jesus. Amen.